You're listening to the newest episode of Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life, with your host, Kim Olver. This is Kim, and welcome to the 22nd episode of Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life. I am thrilled to bring you today's podcast. Because my guests live in vastly different time zones, they were interviewed separately instead of as a panel, so it's a bit different and by necessity longer than my previous diversity and inclusion podcasts. I will be speaking with three exceptional humans who are members of the LGBT community. As such, they live with discrimination and inequities every single day by just living their lives, being themselves, and loving whom they love. Let's hear what they have to say. Our first guest is Kalika Murti Saraswati Such. She lives in Alice Springs in the center of Australia and has done so for the past 27 years. Kalika works as a counselor, a yoga teacher, and a business consultant. In the 80s, she was the first out lesbian counselor in Melbourne and worked extensively with lesbian couples. She was part of the organizing committee for the 1990s Lesbian Festival and Confest held in Melbourne attracting over 5,000 participants. Upon moving to Alice Springs, she was amongst a group who ran the gay and lesbian monthly dances called Asylum. And from 2002 to 2005, she and her business partner ran the gay and lesbian festival known as Alice is Wonderland. Calica lives with her partner of 14 years. I'm really glad you're here. Can you tell us a little about yourself and your experiences with discrimination and inequities living as a lesbian? I've been in Alice Springs for 27 years, which is the centre of Australia, and it's what's called a remote regional hub. In terms of Australia, it would be seen as what we would call a redneck place 30 years ago. So racist, sexist, misogynist homophobic, all those sorts of things. When I came to live here, I was also aware that it had a bit of a reputation of being the lesbian capital of the world. But I also had to make some decisions for myself based on previous experience. And those two fundamental decisions was that, you know, I would go wherever I wanted and do whatever I wanted in the world and in my life. And I would never worry about being a lesbian again. So that if other people had problems with that that was going to be their concern not mine and that is because if you live outside the norm as still lesbians do to this day then and as a woman which is the double thing is that there is always an awareness or attention with regard to safety whether that's personal physical mental emotional safety It's always a consideration when you're meeting people for the first time. Is this relevant? Are people going to be something about it? As a counsellor by profession, I counsel a huge range of people and I'm aware that some of the people I counsel would not come if they knew I was a lesbian. They have very strict fundamentalist or Christian views or other reasons why. You know, there's an ongoing tension and whether you're gay, as in male, homosexual or lesbian or bi or transgender, there's still an ongoing tension at all times unless you are with a group of people that you feel totally accepted by. 
In Australia, we've just had, or just in the last couple of years, had the marriage debate, which by referendum was decided that marriage would be legal. But the process that was used to have that debate was horrendous. People died. People are still probably dying inside. It nearly killed one of my close friends in terms of she was an activist. She was promoting gay marriage and lesbian marriage. You know, she'd have people that she lives in a country town and in Sydney, and she had people that she worked for and worked with. They really loved her and they got on really well, but they were going to vote against gay marriage because they didn't think it was right. Not necessarily because they had a Christian view, but also they didn't want to change the male stream or the mainstream. Mm. So she had these endless debates, conversations, experiences with people like that, that were probably like-minded on many things, but were going to vote against marriage and absolutely could not understand why she chose to not have anything to do with them anymore. So I think that even though I now live in a country where it's accepted, there's still an ongoing tension, particularly when you travel. In Australia, I can honestly say that there is a difference. There is a difference to walk around. There is a difference to hold hands with my partner. There is a difference about being seen in public. As a country, Australia has decided that this is okay. And there is a huge breath out that has come from that for a lot of us. However, it's still inequities and discrimination. And I'm graced. I mean, I'm a white lesbian, so in many ways I can pass as heteronormal or heterosexual, or people can assume that. I know that if you're coming out in the Aboriginal community, certainly in the central desert here, then that's a whole other challenge that you've got to go through and risk family and community loss of acceptance, which effectively means death in many ways. I think in those communities as well that there's big changes and certainly in the top end, as we call of Australia, the Tiwi Islands and that, we have what are called sister girls and there's lots of them. It's an ongoing tension and we're all in the same family because then then I will see on social media what happens to other gay and lesbian and other people. I wouldn't want to be in Poland. I wouldn't be going to Poland at the moment. There's lots of countries that if I did go to, including parts of America, I wouldn't be going there. I don't think it's safe if I was an out lesbian. Yeah, I'm afraid you're right. I mean, we have laws too to protect your rights here, but making laws doesn't change people's minds. You can have a law and make it legal, but you still have people who will stand in their self-righteousness and think that they have the right to criticize, to assault, to rape, to beat up, to kill even. Yeah, and I guess what we also have here is government-backed, pushing for a religious freedom in terms of law. So that's basically saying, well, if you don't want to serve someone or if you don't want to work with that person or you don't want them in your venue, you can do that because you have the right based on your own religious freedom. So really that's designed to undermine everything that came about by the licensing of gay marriage. 
that's happened here as well, where mm. store owners are allowed, based on religious reasons, to refuse serving any gay or lesbian or transgendered customers. Mm. I don't get it. I don't understand it. I don't like it. But that is the way that it is. So I know that you talked about a constant tension, unless you're with a group of people that you're really safe with. What are some things you've experienced that have scared you or made you feel unsafe? There's always the threat of male violence, isn't there? So that's an ongoing thing as a woman. I don't know many women who walk anywhere with punity, and if they do, that's because they're unaware. <laughs> um, they've got the survival skills of a snowflake, probably. So there's the implications of being physically attacked in some way. And that can be escalated by the hatred of lesbians in that that you're unavailable. It's all the assumptions. It's all the assumptions about it, that you're a man-hater, emasculator. In Australia, we'd say ball-breaker. Those sort of assumptions that people have about you. So I have a quite high profile here in town because I have, I used to co-run the Lesbian and Gay Dance and then a, a friend and I set up a business running Alice is Wonderland, which was a gay and lesbian festival. And that meant we were at the front of everybody's awareness because it was in the paper, it was on the radio, it was on the TV. There was a whole group of people who supported that. There was a whole group of people who were terrorised by that. We weren't allowed to have an event at the swimming pool because we were going to put gay germs in there or HIV germs. People actually told stories about the geography of where I live is inside a very old plain, inside a very old mountain just past a very old mountainous range. So to get out of here, it's called The Gap. You go out through The Gap. So people actually thought that, you know, we went out to the sewage ponds, which are out through the gap, and hung around so the mosquitoes would bite us and get the HIV bug and breed in the sewage ponds and then fly back through the gap to infect people. We were seen as, you know, moral instigators of horridom. I used to have a business in town where there was a fundamentalist church next door and he did all these TV interviews and there was I standing on the absolute edge of the line of our building and his building so that he couldn't have my building in the shot. They're really extreme things. On the other hand, we're incredibly supported by other people just because we're having a go. We were doing something that was good for the town. I guess so that, you know, it's a physical thing of being threatened to be beaten up or whatever because you're a lesbian. I think there's a a white male exclusion. Well, I don't think. I know there's a white male exclusion of women per se. That just goes without saying. Hopefully your people who are listening to this understand that women's voices are less represented, less heard and considered less. So, but on top of that, if people know you're a lesbian, those assumptions about why you're saying things and all that sort of stuff. So recently in the last few years, I've been 
on the edges of participating in a festival here that was the idea was generated probably by the tourist commission by white males who wanted a good reason for a party it was modeled on a really big party on the east coast i think on it was presley or somebody like that they decided to have a big festival here and wanted someone like me to come on board because i've got all these skills and expertise but when it came down to it they didn't care they don't care about lesbian or gay what they care about is making the dollar and following the dollar who they listened to was my colleague phil who's a gay man so men get credibility and even to who they employed to do the event management was a white male from sydney not a lesbian woman with a strong business in conference organising, convention organising, festival. They weren't going to employ us with me saying, look, unless you get the buy-in of lesbian and gay community, unless you include us in the planning, have it reflected in what is the entertainment and all that sort of stuff, you won't get our buy-in. And you might get a big party and people come to town, but it won't be lesbian and gay in any way. It won't be queer, if you want. It won't be any of those things. So there's a whole lot of things that happen all the time in terms of people's assumptions. I live in a town where everybody knows or believes the belief that it's the highest amount of lesbians per capita in Australia and possibly the world. So if we're a one in 10, statistically, and there's 27,000 people here, what does that mean? There's 2,700 lesbians here. I'd like to see them all in a line. That would make me happy. <laughs> That's not counting the gay men, the queers, <laughs> the transgender, the bi, the whatever. So I think here you stand out. And that perception of safety in numbers there wouldn't be anyone in this town who didn't have a gay, lesbian or LGBTI person in their life. That would be impossible. That must provide a real sense of community, I would imagine, and safety. I think it provides a safety. I don't necessarily think it provides community as such because you've got to community you've got to work at you've got to create so we don't have those monthly dances anymore so that sort of community coming together regularly doesn't happen and it's also a product of becoming legal i suppose in terms of marriage but yes it does provide a security a psychological security yeah so I wonder if you could tell us a little about your journey in terms of recognizing that you didn't fit with the sexual norm. When did that happen for you? And what was the journey like from that time to becoming the woman that you are today? Well, I don't think I ever fitted the norm. So that wasn't too much of a transition. And I can look back at pictures of myself from the time I could stand up and walk. And there I am standing with my feet apart and my hands on my hip and a friend of mine did a retrospective of me by photos until I was 50 and I had the same stance all the way through my life. I think in many ways I was raised to be incredibly strong or forged to be very strong. So, I mean, lesbian and gay people weren't mentioned retrospectively. One of my great aunts would have been a lesbian, but she was just strange in the family. I didn't know about lesbians or gay people, let alone by transgender, anything like that, until I was in my 20s when I actually met gay and lesbian people. 
yeah, was it exposed to that? You know, I just, it had never entered my consciousness. I was also in a very stable relationship with the man. And he always used to say to me, if a man comes along, I don't think I would ever have to compete against another man. But if a woman comes along, I don't stand a chance. And I would say, what does that mean? And he said, oh, you're working out. He knew what I didn't know. So it wasn't until I met other lesbians and saw that there were options, there were choices on the table that I followed that as an attraction. I guess the other thing is about being lesbian is there's a, at the time, I perceived it as a greater freedom, whether that was just not just sexual freedom, but emotional, mental, psychological freedom. I mean, I was a very assertive, competent, able young woman in my 20s. I'd driven on my own for six months up the east coast of Australia and camped on my own. I was pretty robust, but I was also aware that even in the quality of relationship I had, I was never going to personally grow to the capacity that I could if I stayed in this situation, not just with him, but in that heterosexual life. And so when I had a choice, I took it. And I remember at one time going to a dyke bar and going down these stairs and underneath a pub and there were all these women that theoretically were the worst sinners on earth with their short hair and they looked tough. This is nearly 40 years ago. I remember looking at this group and thinking, wow, if this is what it means to walk off the edge of the world into the underworld, this is just cushy. <laughs> this was, it wasn't nearly as scary as I imagined. It was just like, oh, okay. Yeah. It was scary for lots of other reasons in terms of not knowing the rules of the game and totally unaware of the rules of the socialising, politics, sex, anything, not knowing the rules of the game. But in terms of walking off the edge of the mainstream or safe in anything and taking this one step into the depths of inequity, wow, this is for me. And then that was a great explosion. I got to spend lots of time. I lived as a radical lesbian separatist for about eight years. It was incredibly interesting politically and socially. And I think that the man I saw the most was the man who cooked my dinner two nights a week because I worked too much to cook. To just be a lesbian wasn't enough because, again, I was constrained by the rules of a minority group. Then I continued to explore and life transcended beyond just being out on the outer due to being a lesbian. So it sounds like you really found your home or a place to belong where you could be who you wanted to be without judgment. No, I found a place that it was safe to explore myself. Inside any minority group, there are pretty strict rules whether they're seen or unseen, about how to operate because minority groups, the forces of minority groups against the mainstream mean that the sticking together to survive and thrive creates a whole set of rules and boundaries. In some ways, I had more constraint as a lesbian woman than I did as a heterosexual woman. As a heterosexual woman, I could do whatever I wanted because I wasn't ever going to listen to any man. Hmm. But as a lesbian woman inside that community to maintain my 
safety and connectedness within a minority grouping, it doesn't pay to break the rules. This is a long time ago and life's completely changed. It's much more fluid now. It's much more safe. I mean, we have femme dykes, lipstick dykes, queer, bi, gay. There's a whole range of how people identify along that spectrum of LGBTI. Those same rules don't apply as they applied then. Well, if I could ask you, I I know for our audience, you're saying LGBTI, and I'm aware of LGBTIA. Could you tell our audience about the I? Really, the A, at least one of the A's, is why I'm doing this show. So do you want to fill us in on those extra letters that some people may not be aware Uh, um, of? Hopefully. L, lesbian, G, gay, L, G, B, bisexual, L, G, B, T, transgender. So what used to be called transsexual is often called transgender now. Then there's Q, L, G, B, T, I, Q. So I is intersex. There's another name for it, like non-binary. There's Q, which is queer. And then there's P, which is pansexual. And what's the A? Well, I know the A to be asexual or ally. I've heard it both ways. Yeah. Pansexual is really interesting. Um, I can see really clearly in my mind when we used to have these gay and lesbian dances because nobody can come in unless they're 18. And we used to let, all of us knew, we used to let this young man in who was underage He wasn't allowed to drink or do anything illegal except come. That was because he'd arrived in Alice Springs when he was about 12 and he'd said to the high school when he turned up, I'm here, I'm queer, get over it, it's your problem. And he was so out. But he wasn't just queer and he wasn't just gay. He would not know. One day he could be totally male looking one day be totally feminine looking you see this beautiful long blonde hair and he'd wear it in these gorgeous plaits and he was not anything that you could define he just loved on the spectrum of who he loved was who he loved and there was no because your agenda because i bat for the side of the team whatever he was just pan he was everything sexual in one he was phenomenal young man i think with intersex and transgender and gay and lesbian or you know you're making a statement about your sexual preference queer i don't i'm not queer i don't really like the term i don't really understand the term i wouldn't ever call myself queer I wonder whether that creates a way of being in the world where you're not necessarily bound by stereotypes. You can be the way you want to be, but there's also a recognition that who you're attracted to is not hetero. You're not heterosexual. Got it. Thank you for that. Because I want to talk mostly towards allies and people who want to help and fight for gay and lesbian rights and for the rights of the LGBTQAIP community, I wonder, do you have any advice for allies? Like, what do they need to know to effectively stand for LGBT rights? What would you tell them that they could do or maybe not do that would be helpful? I guess there's two main things. Don't make assumptions about us. Don't box us in. 
Well, the same way that you treat any minority group, there's a lot of assumptions made about black people. And we've seen that recently in the States with some poor woman who's the police have gone into her home. They're searching a home. It is her home. They've got the wrong place and they shot her. Basically, they shot her because she's black. There's a whole lot of assumptions that we make about minority groupings or not even minority, but the other. So get to know the person. Be friendly, smile, say hello. They won't bite. They're not germ-ridden. That's one really important thing. Just get to know people. It's all in the relationship. But I guess the other thing is, who was it who said, if you're not with us, you're against us? It's about standing up and recognising that it's a human right and it's a human existence. It's a phenomena of being human. I didn't get up in the morning and decide I'm, I'm going to be attracted to women. It was a journey. It's about standing up and supporting. So if you see injustice or if you see prejudice or if you, you see that sort of behaviour, stand up and be counted. Go into the shops where the cake shops run by gay and lesbian people. Stand up. Support the rally or whatever. Or in a small but very loud way, refuse to have the conversations that happen. You know, the, the underhand, oh, well, she's a lesbian, or you know she's gay, or, or all that sort of stuff. Don't be part of that. Stand up to that in your own life. Right. Don't turn your back on ignorance, really. When people are saying things that are hurtful, even when no one's within earshot, if you're in earshot, you need to call them out on that. Yeah. Yeah. I think about allies and I consider myself an ally of a lot of social justice causes. And I'm aware that sometimes allies can mean to do well and they may go into an area and make a lot of noise and upset a lot of people. And then they go back to where they came from and they leave the minority group there now with the majority who's upset now because this ally came in and stirred things up. So have you ever had that experience or do you think that that's possible? Can an ally do more harm? I don't know about do more harm and possibly they can, but it goes back to the first point. Get to know people. Don't make assumptions. Don't speak on behalf of people if that person's in the room to talk for themselves. Express your understanding from what you know, maybe what you've read, who you've talked with, whose community. Be willing to be not using righteous control. The third stage of that is the right to tell people what to do for their own good. I'm going to do this on your behalf. I don't need people to do that on my behalf, but you can walk with me. We can yeah. do this together. We can work together, but check it out and have a look at your privilege that you don't even know you have by being in the mainstream. You you don't, there's a whole range of things you never, ever, ever have to, you don't have to think about it. If you're non-binary, let's do the short version. Um, if you're non-binary, you do. You never know who's going to look at you and think, am I touching that person? Am I a pedophile? Am I doing it the wrong way? My partner's brother refused to let her have anything to do with the children, which were three girls, in case oh. they'd be contaminated by the lesbianism. I mean, there is karma because one of his daughters is now gay and living with a transgenderist. Mm. So there's, there's karma in some ways. 
yeah, be aware of those assumptions. It's all those unconscious little conversations that we have, all those unconscious justifications, all of those things. So if you're on a road to evolution, question yourself about those things in the same way that hopefully we would be questioning ourselves is this racist? There was a recent survey of people being asked in Australia, are they racist? And the amount of people that said, no, they're not racist. And I live in an incredibly racist town because statistically it's very black and white. I live in a town where the oldest living culture is very alive and language is spoken. And I can't say I'm not a racist because there's a whole lot of unconscious biases. So you've got to be aware. You've got to be willing to be aware. Yes. I think that may be the most important thing for allies is to continue to to have, yeah, be willing to be aware and be willing to be vulnerable, be willing to sound stupid and just ask questions, get to know people on an individual basis and correct Mm -hmm. inequities when you see them and there's something you can do about it. Well, you don't know if you don't ask in the same way that if you hadn't asked me to do this, you wouldn't know if I would or wouldn't do it. But I guess you've got to be prepared to hear, no, I don't want to talk about that. Or no, I don't think that's any of your business. Or no, you need to ask somebody else. Asking's not the problem. Being unwilling to accept the no is. I think that's great advice. In my view, yeah. But other people who aren't so out mightn't feel like that lots of people just don't want that to be at the center of their life and I can honestly say being a lesbian is not the center of my life I have a very rich spiritual life I have other things that are much more at the center of my life than being a lesbian is it part of my core identity absolutely I just want to give you an opportunity Calica if you have anything you'd like to add in closing When in doubt, be fabulous. And when in doubt, be kind. Oh, beautiful. Well, I really want to thank you for your willingness to have this conversation. I think we need to have more conversations like this. It means a lot to me that you did say yes and you were willing to put yourself out there for my audience. I just think it's something that I appreciate and won't forget. Thank you. No problem, as we say in Australia. No worries. Our next guest is Paul Ayerabino. Paul is an activist, speaker, coach, and documentarian with a strong interest in storytelling and preserving LGBTQ history. He produced the groundbreaking video, Breaking the Silence, an oral history of Oregon's LGBTQ service members in 2017 and just completed a follow-up film. Paul's storytelling company, Our Bold Voices, trains and mentors new storytellers while helping raise funding and awareness for local nonprofits doing important related community work. You can follow Paul at www.ourboldvoices.com. So welcome, Paul. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you, Kim. Thanks for having me. I'm really happy that you're here, and I'm happy to have this conversation. We've been doing all month different podcasts with different marginalized groups, and I'm looking forward to this one in particular because I think that I have a lot to learn about this population. So I may ask you some questions that sound like, I don't know what I'm talking about, because I know you and I feel safe with you. I feel okay in doing that. So thank you for that, first of all. Yeah, sounds good. 
All right. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your experiences you may have had with discrimination and inequities as a gay male in this country? Sure. I think a lot of what I've experienced is generational. So back when I was sort of coming of age in the 1980s, it was also a time when HIV and AIDS was on the scene and there was a lot of panic so when HIV first came out, it was referred to as ARC and also GRID, gay-related immune deficiency. So there was a lot of stigma back in the 80s. And so that's where there was a lot of pushback. And that's when I think there was a lot of fear of people who may be gay because of HIV. I think that was super challenging. And I think I experienced most of the discrimination during that period of time when I was trying to figure out who I was in this world, but also a lot of fear about AIDS and you're going to hell. And a lot of that messaging started, at least for me, in the early to mid 80s. I remember because we're very similar ages and I can remember learning about HIV and AIDS. And we were told back then it was the gay disease, right? Correct. Yeah. Or the people who are drug Using addicts. Drugs. Who are, Correct. Right? Yeah. And I also remember, you may have experienced this, but I remember people were afraid to touch anybody who might have HIV or AIDS as if it were contagious to the touch, which had to be so heartbreaking to people who need that physical touch to feel comforted. Wow. Yeah. And the medical community was completely overwhelmed. So there was a lot of challenges in the medical community. People were dying very quickly. This is back before we really knew what it was and it was emerging. So there was this one or two year period where there just wasn't good information and people were hesitant. They didn't know how it was transmitted. It's actually very similar to what's going on with COVID. All of a sudden it comes on the scene, except the difference is COVID is affecting everyone more globally than HIV was affecting more one population over another. So you live completely out. There's nothing about you that you hide. Uh, yes, although... <laughs> I would say that's 99% true. And sometimes I have to determine who I want to be out to a stranger. Like, does it matter? I do some on-call work and I was in a closed vehicle with this elderly woman who I do on-call work for elections. And for balance, they always have people of different political parties as we're collecting ballots. We live in Oregon, so we have a vote by mail state, which is awesome. And also we, you can go to any public library and do a drop-off. I was with Louise for like eight hours. And so I'm driving, she's the passenger. And I'm like, oh my goodness, look at that. I know gardening pretty well. So we were having this conversation. I'm learning about her and her husband. And the next day she says to me, Paul, I noticed that you do a, a lot of gardening. Does your wife like to garden? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah. Actually, she started off with something like, are you married? I'm like, mm -hmm. yeah, I am. And she's like, oh, that's great. And then does your wife like to garden? And I'm like, not as much as me. And when I came home and I told my husband, he's like, what? You're out to everybody. I'm like, yeah, but if I'm going to be in a vehicle for someone who may or may not, but probably is not going to be feeling the love about this, I don't want to have to do that. It's easier for her to think something different. But that's not the norm. I'm pretty much out to everyone. Well, knowing you, it sounds like that was more for her benefit than for yours. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. think so. I think that most of my audience are people who either think of themselves as allies or who would like to be an ally or more informed as an ally. I know I think of myself as an ally. When I was in college, there was an organization called Gay Rights at our school, and I went because I was a supporter of gay rights. I thought everybody had a right to love whoever they loved, and that was just a simple inalienable right. I went to this meeting and I was the only straight person there. 
that was quite an experience for me, but I liked it and I kept going back because it's important to me. I think from the time I was a little girl, I was the champion for the underdog. That's kind of how I saw myself. When there was a bully on the playground, I always stood up to the bully because I didn't think it was right for people to take advantage of other people. But there's so much to understand about being a straight person and wanting to be an ally for the LGBT community. For me, a lot of it is around languaging because language changes. And I was talking with a woman who's going to be on the podcast a little later. She talked about gender fluidity. Can you tell me a little bit about your understanding of what gender fluid means? Yeah. So just to kind of go back to the earlier part of the question. Language, as we all know, is very powerful. It's evolving and it changes all the time. And as a diversity educator, when I go out, I'm often asked, give me the language. I want to know the safe words. I want to know how to say things so I don't offend anybody. The short answer to that is it doesn't exist because it's changing all the time. Or I have organizations that say, I want my staff to be culturally competent. And can you do it in 45 minutes? It's like, no. It doesn't exist. No one is culturally competent. It just doesn't happen. I'm saying that to let people know that we need to have a little bit of grace around this and that we have to be humble. And we also have to just have the ability to adapt to new languages. So when you're raising gender fluidity, it also brings up, it used to be the gay and lesbian community. Back when I was growing up, gay was the word. Then it's gay and lesbian. And then it's gay, lesbian, and bisexual. Then it's gay, lesbian, bi, trans. And then the alphabet just keeps expanding because we have language now that we've never had before. For example, with people who are transgendered, that's a relatively new term. We didn't have the word trans. We didn't have the language. What we did have a long time ago were really offensive words like tranny. We had crossdresser. We had transvestite transsexual. And so it was really the sexualizing and the demoralizing of people. Well, now we have language. So with the trans community, they're kind of where the gay community was back 30 years ago. We have more visibility. We didn't have role models for trans community until fairly recently. People like Laverne Cox and Caitlyn Jenner. It's like, oh, kind of like when Magic Johnson had HIV. It's like, oh, now we know someone. With gender fluidity, with terms like non-binary, I recently did a performance with all folks that were trans and non-binary. I was contracted to do it through a faith-based church that's very welcoming. And here I am, because I do storytelling, I have one of my members who clearly identifies as non-binary. And technically, non-binary is supposed to come under the trans umbrella. The term non-binary means that one does not identify with either gender. They're on the spectrum. And some days they might present as more masculine or feminine, but they don't use that marker. That doesn't define them. This person's telling me, and again, I'm a lifelong learner like you and your audience, that they don't identify as trans because trans basically means you pick a gender. If I'm transitioning from male to female, I am now female in my new gender. I may be transitioning, but ultimately that's where I go and I'm now identified as female. A lot of people in the trans community don't like the terms, I'm a trans woman. It's like, I'm a woman because I'm a woman now. So when you're non-binary, that does not fit. And again, I'm just telling you what I've learned. So when I go back to the organizers and say, oh, I need to change the title, this is a very, very forward-thinking church. They have a whole trans thing, international, and they come back to me and say, well, we ran it by the trans committee. <laughs> Actually, not the trans. We ran it by our LGBT. The thinking is that trans is a term that applies to 
everyone that's gender variant? And I said, yeah, and if you Google it. However, younger people coming up now are challenging those assumptions or challenging that language. And I said to the organizers, I really need to put non-binary in there because my person's not going to feel comfortable. And that means other people might not be comfortable. But it was a good exchange. You asked about gender fluidity. Yeah, gender fluidity is a huge thing. And we didn't really have the language. And so what happens is we were in this whole binary thing. And if we think back like, like to our childhoods, it was clearly male, female. In the home I was growing up in, Women, the girls did girl tasks. The boys did boy, you know, like outside we did this shoveling and stuff. It's ingrained in us about gender. And so gender fluidity is just that we can express both genders. It's like both and. Probably longer than you needed, but I'm just trying to provide some context to it as well. I actually love that. If you were talking to someone who was trying to understand the struggle about being gay in a heteronormative culture, what do you think would be important for them to know? I think it's important for them to know the stories, the context, the background. As a storyteller and as a person who uses stories a lot in presentations, I find that that's what people remember the most. So when you can personalize something, even if the experience is very different, we understand those key things of what it feels to be marginalized or made to feel different. We all understand what that feels like. So that's where I start. I like to have people just know me as a person first, and then we can get into questions, but I'm open about it. And the other thing too is because of this world that we live in, there's so much internalized homophobia, internalized transphobia. We experience it as a marginalized community. And just a quick example of that, when I was raised, the messaging that I got was stay away from those older men because I grew up in an era where we had PSAs in school and that gay people were recruiting. They were recruiting children. And so even though I know as a gay man that's not true, and that most of the folks who are committing pedophilia are heterosexual men, that is something that I've held on to. And just a very, very quick example of that, I was at a gay pride event several years ago, and there was a woman there from the Big Brother Big Sister, and she says, oh, would you like to be a big brother? And I said, oh yeah, but I don't know anything about changing oil and I don't like sports events. And I already had these preconceived notions of what it means to be a man. And so she says, well, do you like to go to the library? Do you like to play Frisbee? Do you like going for a hike? I'm like, yeah, I love all She's like, you should think about becoming a big brother. So I'm like, okay. I fill out the application, the criminal background check, and she comes back and she's like, you're great. You're good to go. And for the first year that I was a, what they call a big to a nine-year-old boy, I struggled because I never wanted to be alone with him, even though I knew I wouldn't do anything. It's because of the judgment that I thought I would feel from community, but also the messaging that I received. So I had to do a lot of heavy growth work, and that shocked me. It came out of left field. I didn't even know that I was holding on to some of those homophobic beliefs. I think for allies to know that we sometimes struggle from that marginalization and sometimes it's because of the bad messaging that we've received over the years. And so I'm still doing work on this and I'm 57. So I'm still learning and growing and trying to undo some of that damage. Speaking of messaging, what do you think you would say to someone who basically believes that what you're doing is a choice? Well, <laughs> I think people can believe what they need to believe. Just like if we bring up the Bible, I'm like, I don't know. I'm like, good luck with that. Uh, thoughts <laughs> and prayers. So I, I don't often try to engage. I can just say from my experience, I believe it's not a choice. And I think it's important for people to know 
why would somebody want to choose something when you're going to be the underdog in essence, right? So I wouldn't choose, I mean, I'm happy with who I am, but I wouldn't have necessarily chose to be gay. I could choose to be a vegetarian. That could be a choice that I could make, but this is how I was created. I believe it's biological. And so I just make the best of it. Now, there are many people who I believe are born this way. However, because of the extreme homophobia they will try to live a life that appears that way. And I say that because generationally, many gay and lesbians were married to the other gender. And it caused a lot of harm because they were told like, okay, now you're a certain age and you don't want to be the old maid or you don't want to be the bachelor forever. And because of careers, you did better if you were married. To me, clearly, it's not a choice. It's not something I'd like to argue, but I will just explain it from my perspective why I think it's not a choice. So when did you know that you were different? Well, I think it was when I was very young, and I talk about this, the storytelling events I've done for The Moth and Mortified Nation. I think I knew at a very young age. However, growing up in Boston in a working class family, six kids, I felt I was different from a very young age. And when I say different, I mean, I didn't enjoy sports like my brothers did. I was sort of like the oddball, if you will, of the family. I just didn't fit. And it was like, they didn't know what to do with me. <laughs> and I didn't know what to do with them. I was like, this is weird. I don't sort of fit any of these paradigms in this culture. So I knew I was different at a very young age. And I knew what that different meant probably when I was like 10 or 11 or 12 but I always knew I was different because I didn't sort of fit, but I could have also just been heterosexual also and just not like sports. But I think it just ended up being a lot more than that. And so I think it's just a feeling like I just didn't belong at a very, very young age, not only my family, but my neighborhood. I just didn't fit the world. When did you start to fit? How did you find your tribe? That wasn't until I was in college and I went away to school, kind of like when you mentioned earlier, going to the group. It wasn't until I was a sophomore in college. And I think a lot of it because I was living away from home. I was in a college town. I was in a progressive university, University of Massachusetts at Amherst. So it was a really good place to have community and where there were groups and activities. And so that's where I started to come out during the sophomore year in college. Good. I'm glad that you found your tribe because that Thank you. can be a yeah. very lonely existence. Oh, I can't yeah. even imagine. Yeah, yeah. I also am curious about, I learned the acronym LGBTQ, and it seems like Q is no longer really talked about. Can you help me understand that? Well, <laughs> when I do trainings, I have the really long one up there, and it's always changing. What I do with audiences, which I find fun, is, okay, let's start... <laughs> at the easy part and we'll go, we'll go across. <laughs> I'll go like L and the audience is like, lesbian, I'm like, yeah. And then G like, yeah, yeah. And then we start getting into the T and it kind of like, they're like trans something, like, yep. And then once we go to all the other letters and a lot of them are new, for example, there's QQ. So Very I'm like, questioning. yes. And then you keep going and depending on the rainbow train that you're on, there's A for ally, there's A for asexual, there's I for intersex, there's just a bazillion of them. I'd like to have this conversation because I feel it's important so that people understand what those letters mean and that there are people behind those letters. And if we don't see ourselves in those letters, then it's easy for us to feel like an outsider and we don't exist. That's what I generally do when I do a lot of my trainings. 
And having said that, we have to realize that there's a lot of nuances. So oftentimes when I do trainings, people are thinking about, oh, gay. But we look at it from sort of like this Caucasian lens. And that can be really challenging because we have to realize that there's a lot of intersectionality when we use these terms. So for example, what is it like to be a person of color and be transgendered? Well, we know that it's dangerous in this country. The murder rate for trans women is off the charts. The experience that trans women of color experience is very different than what white women experience, white trans women, and also just culturally and the fears. And then we layer that with maybe religious beliefs, how we were raised in our own homes. So it becomes super, super complex. It's not just about the T or the Q, but it's sort of like how we exist in this culture. For example, I'm not a veteran, but I went out and I did a documentary called Breaking the Silence. One of the folks who's trans said in the interview, it's easier for me in the Pacific Northwest to be out. So he is presenting as transgender, which is very dangerous given the political climate. And it's been in this wonky place for years, policy-wise. He clearly said, if I was living down South, I wouldn't be out. I wouldn't be who I am. I wouldn't have the freedom. It's the letters, and I believe it's also the cultural framework in which we exist and how we experience the world. And we have to realize that with intersectionality, being a woman, for example, is more challenging. For example, what happens with me is I am considered a cisgendered gay white male, okay? And cisgendered is a relatively new term for me. And I can explain it to your audience if you need that. But what that means is that by being cisgendered and being a gay white male, I have more privilege in many ways than people who have other letters in the acronym thing. It's important for me. And so just a quick example of that, I was seeing a lot of increase in hate crimes directed towards my transgender brothers and sisters. And a lot of that has happened, unfortunately, through what's been happening federally. I decided that I wanted to raise some awareness. So I went to my trans friends and colleagues and said, I want to do some storytelling around that. But I had to be very, very careful that I approach it in the right way because I don't want to be like the one who goes out there and says, oh, do it some kind of tokenism or just like, I want to make sure I'm getting input, just like you're getting input from me today so that it feels culturally relevant. All that to say is that I have privilege in many circles and I have to think about how I want to use that privilege. And I don't use privilege in a demeaning or negative way. I certainly, because of my age, because of my skin color, because of the connections I have, I have privilege. I have to, at least from my perspective, give back to the community and help people who are experiencing a lot of trauma right now. (laughs) I covered a lot of things that I don't want to get off topic. Well, you're right on topic, but if I could back up just a minute and ask you about cisgendered, because I've not heard that term myself. So if you could explain, not just for the audience, but also for me. Yes. Thank you, Kim, because this is like the first time I heard it, I was actually reviewing curriculum and we had a new person there who was a millennial and he's like, well, what about cisgendered as a term? And I was like, oh, (laughs) and this is probably five, six years ago. I'm like, I'd never heard that before. So that's the thing. So thank you for asking. And I think the other thing that I just want to say before I answer it is like, it's okay. We want to know. Again, we don't want to be offensive or we don't want to use a term in a way that it wasn't meant to be. Cisgendered basically means that I am in the gender that I was born. So my biological gender is male and I identify as male. So most people in society would probably be identified as cisgendered. But transgendered means that you are in a different gender than you were assigned biologically at birth. Because what it does is it says, there's so much focus on othering 
when we use language like, for example, let's just say you're a trans woman, right? Instead of saying, oh, Kim's a woman, which you are, we do this othering thing and we don't mean to. We'd say, oh, she's a trans woman. The implication sometimes is like, well, she's not really a real woman. I don't mean to say this in a derogatory way, but this is how language is used. It's this othering thing. Why can't we just say you're a woman? It's leveling the playing field. So I would say I'm cisgendered and you're transgendered. It's another way of just explaining things. And also by saying that I'm cisgendered, it also means that in some circles of people who are strictly transgendered, I may not be a safe person to be around. It's just a way of identifying and it's a way of trying to, I think, normalize or balance how we describe things. Does that make sense? It makes a lot of sense and I really like it. It's similar to when Barack Obama became president and people would say, he's so articulate for a black man. I mean, yes. it's like he's yes. so articulate yes. for any yes. man. Any man. Yes, yeah, exactly. <laughs> or woman. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a qualifier. Do we have to use that qualifier? And if we use that qualifier, are we using it consistently? And while it seems to me, as someone on the outside looking in, that there must be such conflict within, in terms of wanting to be proud and identify who you are, and at the same time recognizing it's nobody's damn business what your sexual practices are. I mean, I don't go around introducing myself as, hi, I'm Kim Olver, I'm heterosexual. I would imagine it creates some turmoil. I don't know, what would you say? I would say it's getting easier. I think it's getting better. And I'm very encouraged. And maybe it's because I live in the Pacific Northwest, but I'm encouraged by what I see with young kids today. I'm encouraged Mm. by, you know, like when I was growing up, we didn't have the gay straight alliances. Now they're called something else. We didn't have that level of support. So for example, you mentioned earlier in college, wouldn't it be awesome in middle school or high school that you could be part of an alliance and doesn't matter what your gender is, but this group is working together to bring awareness. And I think younger kids are identifying as trans or not really sure about their gender and parents doing really good work to support these kids. And does gender really matter? And trying to get away from, because of generation, sometimes I fall into, oh, she's so cute. She's adorable. And it's like, when we give that messaging to kids based on gender, for example, yeah, she's adorable and she could be the next president. <laughs> she could be the next scientist. And we do that without even sometimes realizing. So I think what I see now, and again, this is related to where I live in the world, I see conversations that I would have never saw growing up. I see dads being very emotionally grounded with their kids and giving them kisses and like taking them for bike ride. I didn't experience that growing up. And that's not even so much like an LGBTQ thing. This is more just I think how people are adapting and changing so that we don't say, oh, she's a girl and she's going to be this. It's like this person could be transgendered and it doesn't matter. It doesn't erase the pain that I've experienced growing up, but we also were in a different place back then. We didn't have the information that we have now. And I'm very encouraged for our future when I see that. So there's been progress. Yes, but I can only speak from what I see in my neighborhood and my little bubble. You know, that doesn't mean somewhere else in this country, the world, that there is not the acceptance of that. I mean, right now we're living during COVID-19 and there's a huge divide where all over the country people are going to protest without masks in front of these state capitals and there's a denial that there's COVID-19. People are entitled to their own opinions, but what's scary about that is then we're going to see the rates of infection increase. So people are entitled to their own opinion. However, I tend to be around people who realize that like, yeah, this is a thing. Like people are sick. I was sick for two weeks and I recently had an antibody test and it says I've been exposed. It's something. 
I liked what you said about privilege because I think it really relates to being an ally. Allies have privilege. And I think that it's really difficult for the marginalized group, no matter how much they band together and have marches and try to make change, I think without allies, people who actually have that privilege speaking up on their behalf, I think that that helps any particular challenge with any group. I know that when Blacks were marching in the 60s, there were white people marching with them. And that's what I think allies are called to do. Well, you have to do what you're comfortable doing. I'm not trying to ask anyone to put themselves in harm's way, but as an ally, you have to do more than just accept ally means that you are a partner in the struggle and you're willing to help stand up for people who deserve to live their life the way they want and to try to help educate others who may think differently. For me, education comes, like you said, from getting to know people, real people who have lived these different lifestyles than what you've ever experienced and hear their story because they're no different from you. What do I know about you, Paul? I know you love to tell stories. I know you like to garden. I know that you're married. I know that you like to help people. You volunteer. You do good work with elderly. I mean, there's things that I know about you that I really respect about you. I know I don't know you as well as I could, but what I know about you, I really like, and it has nothing to do with who you sleep with. Who you sleep with, really, for me, is your business. But if there's something I can do to help in the struggle, I really want to be able to help. Don't hesitate to reach out if you can think of anything that I might be able to do. If there's a time, if there's a protest, if there's something that you think my presence would be helpful, I want to be there. Thank you. I also want to ask you if you were in front of an audience of people who really wanted to be an ally for the LGBT community, what advice would you have for them? A couple of things, just getting back to the word privilege, since it's come up in our conversation, I think that term has, <laughs> has a fracture in communities. So I think it's important to understand that privilege is something that we have. And prior to our conversation online here today, I was explaining, I was on a call recently and I'm out in my backyard and someone on the phone said, oh, it must be nice to have a backyard because she lives in affordable housing in her own little apartment and doesn't feel safe going out. For me, I'm like, oh, note to self, like I have some privilege around that. That does not mean that I'm a horrible person. That doesn't mean I'm a bad person. I have an outside yard. I'm in Oregon. If it's not raining, I'm going to be outside. But I have to realize that that privilege is something that I have. Should I deconstruct the yard, move to an apartment? No, I have privilege. I just want to be really clear about that because getting to your point about allies, we have always, always needed allies in the struggle. And you mentioned civil rights and yes, it was really the people of color that was lead, they were leading that charge and white people joined them. And white people who had privilege were able to join. And the things that white people were able to do is they had access to resources and places and things that helped people of color. One of the things is to realize that privilege is not a word that people feel comfortable, realize that they have something that they can offer. When I was at the Glasser training, I had a wonderful conversation with one of the members and issues from Australia, and she really wanted to go back and offer something. But her big thing was, I'm not a person from the community. What can I do? And so immediately I'm like, oh, you could do a lot. We need you. And she says, but I'm straight. Right. And that's kind of like what I was saying earlier. I'm not transgender. I got to be really careful. And I said to her, oh, but I'm pretty sure that PFLAG is, is an international organization. And she's like, what is that? And so it's parents, friends of gays and lesbians. It has a different name now, so it's more inclusive. And I go on my little, my device and I'm like, oh my goodness, 
there's several chapters in Australia. She's like, no way. And I'm like, yeah, look, there's ways to be engaged. That's probably one thing I would say. The other would be, there's a lot of ambiguity and there's a lot of things that we just don't know and to just ask ask it in a respectful way because in order to be an ally we have to know what we don't know we have to be educated so that we're not out there like leading the charge and then saying something that is like ooh, like not right. not good you know I'm like oh where did that come from and the other thing too similar to that is realizing that there's so much intersectionality attached this example i want to use is that when there were a lot of these women's marches around the globe in our own area here in Oregon, there was a lot of disagreement because there were white women that were leading the charge for the women's movement. There was concerns because of women who were feeling that they weren't getting to be visible. So again, trans women, trans women of color, Latinx, it became a political nightmare. And so they had to restructure and bring in a whole new way of engaging. And so I think some good things happen from that. But again, we have to be really careful. I'm out there. I can explain my experience. I'm a gay white man. But again, many African-American men, their experience is very, very different from mine because they're experiencing discrimination on multiple fronts. So I think part of that is to realize that there's privilege. There's also different experiences with intersectionality. And we have to always be thinking of the broader diversity goals because it's very easy for me to sort of like tokenize it. I can find five other white people to do a panel and say, here it is that's not gonna really help us in this movement. We have to really find people. And the other thing is when I'm out there as a storyteller and I'm reaching out to communities of color, I have to extend the time. I have to do the legwork because all too often what happens from my experience, especially in mainstream organizations, and I'll say well-intentioned mainstream organizations is they're like, well, we have a black person at the table or there is no black, per we'll find them later. And then what ends up happening is they're four or five meetings in and then like, oh, quick, we found a black person and we found, a, you know, whatever. And it's like, but then it's sort of like an afterthought. So we have to be thinking about this from the very beginning. And we have to think, ah, who's not at the table and why and how can we engage them? And again, we have to be open because maybe I'm going down a path and they're like, <laughs> I'm worried about A, B and C. Your agenda doesn't fit mine. How can my agenda be included in that? Oh, so anyway. That's how I see it in terms of just some of the mainstream thinking. And again, as I mentioned earlier, like, well, well non-binary is included in the, well, yeah, maybe when that definition was created 15 years ago, but right now language is changing. And I have someone who's going to feel disrespected if we don't have a word that describes them in the process. And I think you touched on this, but a lot of that is also generational because the words that you grew up with maybe someone who's 30 years younger than you may not be comfortable with and vice versa. So yes. to be inclusive, we want to, because it's not just about diversity. You're talking about inclusion now, and that's so different. I love, yes. The, yes. I love the metaphor that diversity is being invited to the dance and inclusion is being asked to dance. It just makes sense to me. Did you have something different you want to add to that? No, I just, as you were talking, it made me think, and I'm like, oh, this is a perfect example. I was doing an LGBTQ event up in Vancouver, Washington, which is just over the river, not far from here. And I have a credible realtor colleague, chief in the very beginning, who's an ally. She wanted to support this. She was a sponsor, so financially she paid. I credit her for so many things because we needed some practice space. She opened her real estate office for us during off hours, and it was it's very homey. 
wonderful, wonderful human being. After one of the events that we did in this very small town, Camas, Washington, just outside of Vancouver, she came to me and she's really excited. And she says, guess what? We were having some conversations because I always like to have meet and greet afterward at the stories. And, and she says, we're going to do a queer day in the park. We're going to call it queer in the park and blah, 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 blah. And blah, 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 blah. blah. And we want to get you involved. And I said, oh, Lisa, hold on. That word <laughs> is really offensive to some people in our community. Generationally, it's offensive. It's offensive to yeah. me. And it's offensive to people who are a generation before me. I would never use that word. In Portland, we have something called the Q Center. We all know what it stands for. I know people who are older than me that will not step foot in that building because they know what Q stands for. And they've been victimized and brutally beaten over that word. When I'm explaining to her, she's in her 40s. And I've said, that's not a term. She's like, well, these three lesbians said it's fine. <laughs> oh, great. These are younger white lesbians who are speaking for the entire community. That's great. But what I had to say is, if that is the word you're using, I can't put my name on it. I can't be a part of it. And she's saying to me, oh, you're just being a party pooper. See, now that's where, that's where it's very important because now I have an ally who's saying, well, I talked to my three lesbian friends over here and they said it's fine. That's like saying, well, I have a black friend and I can use that joke because they think it's funny. That's the part that I just wanted to underscore here before we moved on is we have to be very, very careful on how we're using our allyship and we have to listen. So she heard from these women, oh, it's fine. And I'm like, uh-uh, I wouldn't use that word. You have to come up with something else. Just like, again, I had this thing called igniting voices and I was like, trans. I'm like, we got to stick the word non-binary in there. It really wasn't a big deal, but I had to advocate for that. Am I transgendered? No. Am I non-binary? No, but I'm listening. And if I'm going to piss some people off or some people won't come because of that, I'm listening, whether I'm trans, non-binary. And again, I was really disappointed, but I was really clear. She finally backed down because I'm like, I'm not doing it. I can't do it. I do events and I'm like, I'm not going to piss people off. But secretly inside, I was really offended because she felt like she could be the spokesperson. And just because she got information from these three people doesn't mean it's okay. Again, like maybe for younger people, it's okay. But guess what? I'm still around. <laughs> I've been brutalized, especially people in their 60s, 70s, 80s. That is a horribly, hor it's like the N word. It really right. is. And so I, I, remember I it. yeah, I'm not doing that. So anyway, I just wanted to make sure I said that because it's so important to me. Yeah, I remember I was talking with a woman who identified as queer and it, on my insides, I went, oh, <laughs> I've not been brutalized by it, but I've been taught that that's a terrible thing to say. But now younger generation, at least some are embracing that word. It's like reclaiming it almost like yeah, reclaiming Americans it. Yeah. did. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Like and it's I, not I, for everybody. I did one that was actually for just younger people. So if you can imagine this, it's me, older, gay, white man, cisgendered, and I've got a young grouping of people, very young. It was phenomenal on so many levels because they're all able to talk as we're looking at their stories and giving feedback. I'm like, you know what? Listen to each other because I can give you suggestions on the beginning and middle and more of like the art of storytelling and where's the arc. But I'm like, this is really important. And at the same time, what's really interesting about this is the way people identify now. Like I had one person who's non-binary and they would say, I am gender fluid, queer, fat, all these like, like 15 adjectives. And so for this person, they were reclaiming the word fat. And at first for me, I'm like, ah, don't say that, it's insulting. But you know what? That's how they identify. And so I have to like open that up. And if this person identifies as gender queer, queer, 
whatever it is, that's on them and that's okay. But I have to realize like, ooh, even inside me, I'm a little like, ah, but I can't do that. I can't erase. But at the same time, I have to be very mindful of the broader audience. And so I'm not calling it the queer event. I think I call that one prideful voices, Vancouver. And so nice. I, I have to be, yeah. So anyway, there's, there's room for that, but also I have to be respectful in titling something. And if people identify something, that's okay. Especially if we're doing something intergenerational. It's amazing when you do an intergenerational panel. Oh my, some of the, the older people, their heads are shaking. Like, what, what does that mean? <laughs> A lot of people in the LGBT community who are older are so afraid of misgendering somebody and I'm sure that happens for heterosexuals as well. It's like, there's this fear, such a deep-rooted fear of like, oh my God, I don't want to say something disrespectful. What ends up happening is we're not as good about communicating because of that fear. So that creates some issues generationally, but I also go back to just the issue of respect. Sometimes when I'm doing presentations, I said, I might say something that's offensive. Please tell me because language is changing so much. And this goes back to like government. I do a lot of government work and they're like, okay, tell me the words. Tell me the 15 things. And I remember during Q&A at one of these presentations, this woman was like, I need to know what to say so I'm not offending somebody. And I was like, guess what? You're not going to like my answer, but you're probably going to inadvertently offend somebody. And she was like freaked out. Like, no, I don't want, nobody wants to be offensive like this, especially us here, your audience. But unfortunately it's going to happen because of the language because language changing. So what I'm saying today, and if I have a glossary of terms, that's six months from now, a year from now, it might not be the same. Well, Paul, our time is coming to a close, although I know when you and I get together, we could talk about I hours. know, I love but, that about us, but I'm trying to be, yeah, because you've got to- Yeah, I want to be this. respectful of your time. Of so yeah. is there anything in closing you would like to add? No, I would say thank you for having this as a topic. And I think what I would like to do for your audience is if there's something that they would like more in-depth information, because we're covering a lot of ground today. We don't have a lot of time. But I guess my question for the audience is two things. Is there something that they need to know more about that would be helpful? And then the other thing is I'd like to challenge the audience. If there's something new that they learn in this podcast today from the different speakers, I feel like there should be a call to action. And for them, that's going to be individual for each person. But I would challenge the audience. What is your call to action? What is it that you would like to do? What is it you want to learn more about? How do you want to engage, bring more people in? Because I feel like this is a sort of a global topic, global presence in this world. We're in a very difficult state right now. So I appreciate you doing this. And also, how does the audience want to move forward with this information? Great. Thank you, Paul. You're welcome. Our final guest is Chris Haig. Chris founded True Change Associates, TCA, in 2005 after 20 years of experience working with academic institutions, corporations, and nonprofit organizations focusing on diversity and inclusion, equity and social justice, leadership development, and team building. TCA's mission is to work in community with people and organizations to move through personal growth to creating lasting institutional systemic change around equity and inclusion. Chris was born in Rhode Island, but calls Boston home, where Chris lives with their wife, Vanessa. I'm so glad that you're here, Chris. Glad to be here. Great. I was hoping you'd be able to tell us a little about yourself and your experiences with discrimination and inequities as a gender fluid individual. Wow, that's a big question. Well, that's interesting because, you know, a little bit about myself, 
and a little bit about my experience with discrimination, but I kind of almost want to flip that and say sort of my experience with liberation around it in a sense of really awesome. understanding understanding myself, right? And so yes, I experienced discrimination on different levels or different identities. And I think most people can speak to a story around that, but I, I guess I want to start from a place is, you know, a little bit about myself, right? And so I do identify as gender fluid. Another term for that that I often use is gender queer, and I'll explain that in a second. But I think that for me, what that means to me is gender we often see in a binary, right? We sort of have this box of what a woman can be and this box of what a man can be, right? And they're very kind of rigid. And when people in society sometimes fall out of those boxes, often they're made fun of or to the scale of violence, like something sort of happens if you sort of don't fit those boxes. A lot of times, a lot of people know a little bit more about maybe the transgender experience for some people that identify as trans, it kind of has to do with those boxes, right? And so the first person that comes to mind who does not represent the trans community entirely, but a lot of people know of Caitlyn Jenner's story, right? And so very one box of Bruce Jenner and that decorated Olympian to the other box of Caitlyn Jenner and who, who sort of came down very scripted on the magazine. And so that sort of makes sense to a lot of people. Okay, so we've got that binary there. But gender fluidity, is beyond that binary. So I've always thought and felt that my gender was fluid, that I didn't fit into this box and I definitely didn't fit into that box. Um, and then as I grew up and heard the concept of transgender and what I learned was sort of one box to the other, I was just like, that's not me, right? And so I, I had a tough time figuring out where I fit in because when I was growing up, there really wasn't that term gender fluid didn't exist. And so it wasn't until I was in my 30s I'm 47 now, just to give some context, that I first heard the term gender fluid. And I was like, what? <laughs> and I felt for the first time in my life that I could connect to a gender identity because I never felt like I could connect to that female box or connect to that male box or connect to transgender within the binary. But since then, I have learned so much more about gender fluidity and trans identities, and it is so much more than that binary. So that's why it's liberating. It's sort of, okay, I see myself, I hear myself, I get to self-identify, I get to be myself within that. And so that being able to understand yourself in terms of society's expectations of gender is liberating. Seems like in choice theory, which is the psychology that Shruti and I talk about all the time, we talk about humans having five basic needs, and one of those needs is love and belonging. So it mm. seems like you found a place to belong. That's what I hear in what you're saying. You didn't really belong in this box. You didn't belong in that box. You didn't belong in the box of switching boxes. What box yeah. did you have? You don't want a box, but you want a place where you feel you belong and there's others who are similar to you. Is that what it felt like? Like wow, people really get me here. Oh, totally, right? If you think about like, there's a quote, and I really apologize, I do not remember who said it, but there's this quote that says, you can't be what you can't see. Mm. And so when you think about what do we see in society, in the media, on TV, all that kind of stuff, I never saw anybody that looked like me or sort of identified as me. And so how can you fully actualize who you are if you don't sort of see that? And like I said, it took me until my 30s to really understand that there's this concept of gender fluidity. And the best part about it for me too, actually, is that this has really exploded and pushed from younger folks. Right. And so mm -hmm. I was benefiting from the work that college students and younger were doing in terms of saying that there are more options out there and we're going to be ourselves in that. And one of the coolest things about it is this idea of self naming. And so 
there's so much language out there in terms of gender fluidity and trans identities that it's constantly evolving, which I love. I just love things that constantly evolve and grow. And there's this opportunity for people to self-name in terms of this, like, I'm going to name my gender in my own terms. I'm going to name my gender in my own language. So I mentioned earlier, I want to make sure I get back to this because it's kind of a big one, right, is I identify as gender fluid. I also like the term gender queer, but I do want to name the word queer in itself has a long history within the LGBT movement and it's complicated. There's a lot of people that have a visceral reaction to that term that have hurt around that term because it was used so hurtfully for so long and still is, right? And yeah. so let's, I want to hold that truth that it is a very dangerous, hurtful term for a lot of people. And it's not always generational, but it is, I would say, a lot of older generations within the LGBT community. However, younger folks, younger generations at the same time have reclaimed that word. They want to take that power back from that word. And so being able to self-identify, yeah, like I'm queer, right? That gives it power. So I always use the expression in my work around multiple truths. And so both are true, that it has a long history of hurt, but it's also there's a power in self-naming and reclaiming for ourselves. And I like the term queer because, you know, if you really think about what it means, like you're queering up gender, right? You're messing it up, right? Whereas a binary is very one or the other and where you're sort of queering it up, you're messing it up, you're sort of playing with it. I like the playfulness in that. So I can hold that and hold the history behind that as well. Can you explain a little bit more about exactly what gender fluidity means? I mean, it almost sounds like it could be bisexual, but I get the sense it's not that, it's something else. I think one of the differences there, you use the word bisexual, is sexuality and gender identity are different. And I think this is one of the big misconceptions because we kind of have the, we have those letters LGBT and they're all moshed together and it's sort of one movement. And there's so much diversity and richness within that movement. And a lot of people identify in different ways within that movement. There's sexual identity, sexual orientation. Who were you attracted to? Who do you choose to be with and love? And actually it's not a choice. That's a kind of a wrong word there, right? Because I can't help who I'm attracted to. I am legally married to a woman, so my sexual orientation, I'm going to use that word again, as queer, because I kind of feel like it kind of messes up the binary, if you will. But that's who I'm sexually attracted to, who I choose to be with. And then there's gender identity. Oh, and you said bisexuality, so bisexual fits in there. And bi goes back to the binary saying, you know, bi is two, so I'm attracted to men and women. But if you want to sort of get to that fluidity thing more, you'll find lots more people saying something like pansexual, which is saying it's beyond two genders for me. I'm attracted to multiple genders. Okay, so that's sexual orientation. And then gender identity. And yes, they're connected, right? This is the hard part, right? Because, you know, you're attracted to a gender, right? Sexual orientation, who you're sort of physically attracted to, you want to be with. Gender identity is your sense of self. How do you want to live? How do you want to present yourself? How do you want to be? And so we're in society, especially U.S. society, you know, we're very told from day one that if you are born as a female or male, these are the boxes you should live up to, right? And like, gosh, I can think about like when my nieces and nephew were younger, I'd go to the toy stores to try to buy them toys, right? And you'd go in and like one side is all pink everything is pink, right? Go to the other side and you've got camo and you've got guns and you've got this very, very, very different thing. So we're sort of socialized into like those boxes. It's created as a society. And so the fluidity thing where it, this has come from, you know, a lot of people, especially younger generations is saying there's more than two genders. 
or there's fluidity in that, or I can be whatever I want to be. It's hard to hold concretely, I guess. It's hard to really get a tangible sense of it. Whereas I think of it as allowing everybody to live in their space and define their gender as they want and sort of, you know, mess it up, right? Sort of a typical gender binary that we see. I don't know if that directly answers your question. I think it leaves me with a lot more questions than answers, <laughs> but I, I think I'm starting to wrap my mind around it. How you identify, it's hard for me, and I think it would be hard for a lot of people. I think the reason that it's so hard is because we've been socialized to the binary. You're either a man or you're a woman. What the heck is yeah. this if there's something yeah. in between? There's nothing in between. You're either this or you're that. And that is a social construct, not necessarily a biological construct, is really what you're telling me, that people can relate as themselves along a continuum. It doesn't need, and that how you relate yourself could move along that continuum. It's not a fixed spot on this continuum of sexuality, that it's fluid. And Wow. I mean, it's, it's like a, for me, <laughs> a mind expansion. And I, I think I'm going to need to sit with that for a while, but I can see how it would be incredibly liberating and freeing for you to be able to, to have that sense of self and not feel like you have to fit into one of those boxes. I love that you said I have more questions than, than answers. And I teach, I'm an adjunct and I teach graduate students classes related to diversity and social justice and equity. And I start every semester by saying, I promise by the end of the semester, you're going to have more questions than answers. And then I have this room of grad students who are like, why? You know, but, but honestly, Kim, if we're doing the work right, if we're truly working towards inclusion and equity, that's where we need to be. We need to be in that space. We're asking more questions than have answers. That's how we do it. Right. And it's how we get to know one another. And it's yeah. not like, you don't fit in my box, so I don't want to know you. That's a crazy way of thinking. It's like, you don't fit in my box, and that's okay. I want to understand yours. And, and maybe, maybe yes. that'll remove the box from around me. Yeah, the true challenge, right, if you are about sort of equity and equality, right, the true challenge is being able to do exactly what you said, reach across and build that relationship and connection. Even if you don't understand, even if you don't think you can ever understand, can you still hold my truth while I hold yours? And I think often we, we fall short of that. As soon as I say, well, I could never understand or I don't believe you, then forget it. Then we never can build that, that sort of inclusive space. And so how do, we, how do we hold those multiple truths? I'm going to go back to that phrase. One of the things that I think about when I talk about sexuality is maybe it's my upbringing, maybe it's my age, but I am clearly a female. I'm in that box <laughs> and I am sexually attracted to men. That mm -hmm. is my reality. Now for me to stand in my truth and deny mm -hmm. your truth, I think that that's almost a criminal action. I mean, I have a truth and nobody can take that from me. And I don't think it's my right to try to take yours from you. You yeah. can identify however you want and you can love whomever you love. And the key word in there is love. I mean, yeah. I'm about love. So if I can love who I want, why can't you love who you want and have the same rights as I would have? Just because I fit in a box and there's more of me than there are of you as it stands right now today, maybe 50 years from now, the world will all be gender fluid. And somebody who identifies as polar opposite in the binary world is going to be the weirdo. And yeah. maybe that person will be experiencing some discrimination. But my hope is that at some point, 
our culture, the world can get to a place where you celebrate love in whatever form that takes. And my way is right for me and your way is right for you. And nobody needs to convince each other that it's different. Wow. Exactly. Yeah. The problem comes is we, we've dictated that sort of your experience is the norm. And I'm using quotes here, the, the norm. Yes. And so that ostrac- that's where the discrimination and the inequities come in because we think this is the norm. And the reality is there have been LGBT people, gender fluid people throughout history. Like we have always been around. It's just, you know, there's more momentum in terms of civil rights. And even with this sort of gender fluidity movement, it's funny, like you said, maybe the scales will flip, right? But in a pretty recent study of Generation Z, so that's kind of like under 20, if you will, something like 70% know of somebody that uses they pronouns. And so the younger generation, there's more and more, and there'd be more and more push, right? And these are things that companies are becoming aware of, and they're thinking about gender-inclusive policies, and they're thinking about their marketing and their products, right? And so it's slowly changing. And I do think you're right. If we can push and understand and hold each other in this, it liberates all of us. Because even if you do identify as a woman in that woman box, it's still kind of restrictive in some ways, right? And so how do we liberate all of us in that? It's interesting because I really don't fit in the strictly female box. I'm a female with a very strong independent streak, which people will say Mm. is male energy. So (laughs) I have a fair bit of male energy. And as a child, I had a brother... Well, I still have him. We, we both grew up. He and I are 19 months apart. And when we were kids, I know that I played with his Tonka trucks a lot. Yeah. And he played with my dolls a lot. But we lived in a binary society. So I grew up to be who I am. And he's a mechanic, completely, totally male. And we both live our lives I don't know if it's our truth, but it's certainly the way that we were socialized to be. And it feels like truth to me. But maybe if we release the shackles of that extreme identity, then we'll see more people being comfortable in their gender fluidity. I love that concept. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I feel like we could talk about this as one little tidbit for hours. (laughs) And I could, but that's not what we were going to do today. I know, I know. It makes me think about the challenge. Mm Mm-hmm with the binary restrooms in, you know, so you have a men's room and a woman's room. And if a person with an Adam's apple walks into a woman's bathroom, women can become fearful that there's a predator in the women's bathroom. It's just a maybe a disproportionate response. What would your answer be to that? I mean, I just keep thinking it would be so much easier in new buildings if we just created individual bathrooms. And yep, people just, don't pee in herds. You just yeah. you just go close the door like you would at your house. Right? And you do what you do, and then it's over. Yeah. Every mean, house that, in America has a single stall restroom that is right? all gendered, right? So we're used to that. This is actually a huge problem, right? And you had asked originally sort of my experiences with discrimination. I've had a lot of negative experience related to using the restroom, which is, you know, it's just like it's an everyday need. If you walk into a restroom and you sort of don't fit a box, right, we'll go back to that feminine box, right, then there's this fear that comes up. And that makes sense. And I totally honor that. And often we hear folks sort of against the trans or the the gender fluid movement that, you know, we have to sort of protect the woman in the woman's restroom type thing, which, yes, we do. And 
what's actually been documented, which we never share this stuff, is that there are more attacks towards the gender fluid folks than the women that identify as women. And so there have been violent attacks towards folks just trying to use the restroom. And so there's actually a lot of danger for actually somebody like me trying to use a restroom. You know, I present very androgynous. I do wear men's clothes because they literally fit me better and I literally feel better in them. I have short hair, but if you're just listening to my voice, I'm tagged as a woman right away, usually. And I travel a lot for work. And so I'm constantly in public spaces. But I have to go to the bathroom. I got to go to the bathroom. And so I use the women's room because I have women's anatomy, if you will. Um, and I try to just keep sort of a low profile, but I've had all sorts of things from purity coming in to me walking out and somebody's husband taking a swing at me and all of these things, which is sort of, wow. so I, I have anxiety related to public restroom usage. And that's real, very, very real for so many people that just want to go to the bathroom. But I'm going to go back to that multiple truth things. I can see how disoriented it is uh, for me to walk into a restroom and somebody reads me quickly as a man, although I'm not a man, right? I'm gender fluid. And then I try to do stupid things like raise my voice and say, hi, how are you doing? <laughs> you know, to try to give cues that I'm not a danger to you. Wow. And, but the reality is, I feel like everybody else is a danger to me when I just want to go to the bathroom. And so, so bathroom use is very real and very concerning. And so a lot of things, so like I said, you know, violence has happened, discrimination has happened, anxiety has happened. You have a lot of folks who, you know, end up with medical issues because they just try to hold it as long as they can, right? And so they don't have to put themselves in those situations. It's dangerous for a lot of people. And so the best solution, yes, is a just a plain old stall with a door on it, right? And I think it, you, we do have a lot of places in newer buildings that are sort of constructing that. But bathrooms use is real, it's complicated. And I think we can do a, a much better job at it because we're talking about people's health and sanity, right? In terms of that. The concept of privilege is something that mm. I think of a lot because I recognize that as a Caucasian heterosexual female, I have privilege I didn't ask for, I don't yeah. necessarily want, but I have it. And I think that most people with privilege, unless they're having these kind of conversations, they don't even recognize the privilege that they have. When I think about heterosexual privilege, I think about the ability to display a photo of my loved one on my desk at work without mm -hmm. anybody giving me problems about it. I think about having my partner pick me up for lunch and being able to hug and kiss in front of my coworkers. That's a fairly normal occurrence, right? With the air quotes. Yeah. Um, but if I'm not heterosexual, that gets to be dicey right? And not just dicey, but possibly unsafe. But never did I think about, I have the privilege to use a public restroom without fear. Yeah. That's not something I ever even thought about. But now I'm going to think about that. I'm going to add that into conversations that I have because people who have privilege, because they don't necessarily want to admit that they have it, they have a hard time seeing that it exists. And I'm really trying to help people understand that it exists, not that we can fix it or change it, but what we can do is those of us with privilege need to help people without privilege gain those privileges. That's what I think is the job of an ally. 
Oh, absolutely. hundred percent. I love that. Right. So my wife is my biggest ally. Right. And so like we have this sort of code thing when we go into public and sometimes she, you know, when I have to go to the bathroom, she's like, do you want me to go with you? Or do you want me to scout it out and see if it's single stall? Right. And so we have this like bathroom plan. Right. And if it's not a single stall, she comes with me and she waits for me. Like she's just, so she's there for me. And so I know that if something were to happen, she will step in as well. Yeah. Um, right. And so we, we can definitely do that. Yeah. And you know, what's interesting when you said privilege, right? And sort of, I'm going on a little bit of a, a sidetrack, but it, it is connected, right? I said earlier, just about sort of the vast diversity within the LGBT community. I think this is important to name. And so, yes, I have definitely experienced discrimination and marginalization based on not only my sexual orientation, but also my gender identity. But when you intersect that with my race, I'm white. It's a very different experience than people of color who also identify similar to me in terms of sexual orientation or gender identity. It's an important concept and hard for people to get because sort of we want to be allies, we want to understand, but we have to understand people's experiences are so unique because of how all of our identities intersect. And so I can tell you there's definitely a lot of violence perpetrated towards trans and gender fluid people. And yes, I've experienced some of that, but I will tell you that majority of the reported violence is directed at people of color and less at white folks. And so I, that my privilege intersects with my marginalization in a certain way. Does that make sense? Yes, yes, it makes a lot of sense. I did a podcast with African-Americans on the same topic of discrimination, and we never even touched on sexuality in that. And it's like, Mm -hmm. I'm trying to do these on a single factor, you know, where I'm talking to LGBTQ. I'm not talking to African-American LGBTQ. I'm not talking to Asian LGBTQ. You know, it's like, I'm trying to do it as a one issue thing, which is not, it's not reality. Someone in my um, African-American podcast suggested that we do one of these podcasts with the central question, what is it to be human? And, (laughs) And really talk about the connections and the challenges on a human level, not card-carrying member of the African-American race or LGBT or, you know, that, that would be fun. And I probably will do that. Well, there's no singular experience of any identity. We can talk about sort of some systemic and societal discrimination that is common. Like, for example, I, you'll find a lot of trans and gender fluid folks who, who will just go on and on about bathrooms, right? Because it's, it's so challenging, right? There's also like within the LGBT community, there's laws and policies directed at yes. our, our rights or not. And those are, those are sort of singular experiences. However, how I experience being queer is very much intersected with my race and how other people experience their race, their race right? Whether it be black or Latino or whatever it is, it's intersected by, by their sexual orientation, their gender, their religion, like all of that stuff. So within each of these communities, there's so much diversity. But it's okay to start with sort of that singular identity and then sort of grow from there and understand yeah. it's powerful, it's intersectional. And back to being an ally, just because you may know one gay person doesn't mean you know the LGBT experience, right? Absolutely. I don't think I could know the LGBT experience without being a member of the community. As an ally, we can only do our best to be sensitive to and understand as best we can what you share with us, not having experienced it firsthand. It's really hard to know, but it's having the desire to want to know that I think is really what makes an ally an ally. I care enough to want to know what it's like for you. I'll never really know. But if you are willing to take the time to talk to me about it, I certainly am willing to invest the time to learn. 
because I think it's important. There's a quote, and again, I'm going to say, I don't know who said it. <laughs> I'll look it up, but no one is safe until everyone is. Yeah. And I really believe that. So today it's LGBT. Tomorrow it might be white females who have brown hair. I mean, who knows? If, if we're going to allow violence and discrimination and oppression against anyone, that could always be turned back around on any group of people, even the people who are in power today. For me, the goal is fairness. It's justice for everybody, no matter who the person is. I know a lot of people who are like me, who, for lack of a better term, I'm going to call them do-gooders. We want to <laughs> do right by people. And I think that there's something to be said about being an ally and knowing when enough is enough. Because one of the things I think allies can do is they can stand for a group of people in a strong way and then they're gone because they're yeah. not really part of that community and they leave and they go home. And then that leaves a lot of other people exposed and maybe in a vulnerable position. Have you ever seen that? And is that something that allies really need to understand? I'm not really sure I've seen exactly what you're talking about, but I think that there are a lot of allies that overstep. And so what I mean by that is, you want to take a perspective that you are standing with to help amplify voices that are not often heard. But if you take a perspective where I'm standing on and I'm going to use my voice and not yours, that's just replicating oppression. Or I'm standing for you because you're not capable of doing it yourself. So yeah. let me lead the way or show the way. Yeah. yeah, that is overstepping as well, I would imagine. Yeah, exactly. So I've definitely seen that. And I think that comes from, we'll say, well-intentioned folks, right? And you want to use your privilege, right? You want to use your privilege and power. It's so important for straight people, just as, as much as LGBT folks, to notice a name, right? When things are, for example, there's still 20 some odd states where it's okay to fire an LGBT person. Right? Yes. And if you're straight, you can move to any state in this country and never worry about your job. Right. So think about that. So we need straight people to recognize that and say, well, this is wrong and not wait just for LGBT folks to say that. So it's increasing, you know, our lenses, our awareness around that, but also again, not leading for, but standing with and amplifying. Yes. I love that. That's a good distinction. Thank you for that. When did you know that you were not fitting in that particular female box or the male box? When did you know? Oh, interesting. Uh, probably always. <laughs> um, I mean, definitely growing up in the 70s, I was a tomboy. Okay, so I had a phrase for it then, right? I was just a tomboy and it made sense and people would just call me the tomboy. But, you know, like you had mentioned earlier, you know, I was definitely playing with my brothers, G.I. Joes and Max Bot cars and all that stuff. And I also like Climbing remember, trees, did you climb yeah, trees? Oh my God. <laughs> I, I was filthy. I always came home filthy you know, I wanted to play baseball. And so I was one of the first little girls to play with boys. This is before, I mean, this is 70s again, right? This is before Title IX, I think, came out, right? And so I, I played, you know, for a little bit on the boys' baseball team. And then as I got older, my gender in the sense of, like, anybody can play baseball, but it was taught that it was a boys' thing at the time, right? And then girls I can only play softball, you know, not yeah, baseball. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right? We need and actually, Yeah. Well, I actually ended up playing 
friends and softball and college and stuff that when I was really young, I just saw my brother doing that. I was like, I wanted to do that. And then, you know, as I got older, my brother played ice hockey. Growing up in New England, hockey is kind of a big thing. And I remember going to my brother's game and my face was up against that glass on the rink. And I was like, oh my God, that's so cool, right? I, and I always sort of wanted to do that. And it wasn't until I got to high school I kept asking and pushing and then finally my parents were like whatever and I ended up trying out for the boys high school hockey team and I made it and so my seven minutes of fame I was the first girl in the state where I grew up Rhode Island to score a goal in the boys hockey league but this is before girls teams right and so I was always doing something different but the name that people just gave me was Chris is a town boy Chris is a town boy I didn't even think of anything of it I was just kind of doing my thing and I think I'm thankful to have my parents who <laughs> tried to put me in dresses and do girl things they let me do these other things. So then I don't think it was until probably high school, though, where those gender boxes really come out in terms of what, what high schools do, how high schoolers do, and who you're attracted to and who you talk about. And I just felt like I didn't fit in with anybody in any conversation, whether it be boys or girls. But I just kind of ignored it. Because that's what you do if you, you don't know and you're afraid to talk about it. Yeah. Do you find that adults will often say to children when you were a child, did you get asked, so do you have a boyfriend? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. And what were those yeah. questions like? Did you ever date a boy or was that yeah. not something you were interested in? I was never interested. And I think, well, but let me just back up one second, just be clear. And so I just want to, because this is the confusion. So I want to say this again. So, so dating boys, right? That is my sexual orientation, which is different than my gender identity. Right. And so, because I was talking about gender. Um, and so, but it does get all confusing. So I just kind of wanted to, to put that out there. It's anytime I have an opportunity to sort of correct that. And so, so as far as gender identity, I just kind of knew I never fit into either the boys over there or the girls over there. But then uh -huh. as far as sexual orientation, I also felt like I never fit in in terms of that. And so didn't want to go to dances and things like that. And I never had a boyfriend. College is when I really realized I was gay right it's sort of now with my sexual orientation that sort of I was attracted to women I tried to date boys but yeah that didn't, <laughs> didn't work um because I didn't want to be that okay going back to you know what society holds up as normal and even sort of I was brought up in a religious tradition that was very much about homosexuality being really evil and a sin and so I had these messages so even though I had this inkling that I may be attracted to a woman I didn't want to go there because I thought I was going to go to hell if I did that so I kind of had to do a lot of work around that and self-work I'll go back to that word liberation and that's the work that we all need to do is how do we find ourselves in the middle of the society in this world that's putting up what is normal or what should be but how do you fully be yourselves in that and that takes years I didn't come out until after college I did not come out as gay until after college. And then as far as the gender identity, I didn't figure that out until my 30s. <laughs> so it's complicated. Yeah. Are there things that presumably kind people, allies, if you will, have done or said that were offensive to you personally? And what could you do to kind of shine the light on those missteps so the rest of us don't make them if we can help it? Oh, interesting. A particular scenario is not coming to mind, but sort of one thing I think I have heard a lot, which is kind of a theme, 
And this has to do more with sexual orientation, right? And sort of who you're attracted to. And ever since gay marriage was passed, which is now a couple of years ago, right? And, and I actually live in Massachusetts. So Massachusetts was the first state to pass marriage. So it's been around for a while and I'm legally married and I enjoy the benefits of that. But I've heard from a lot of allies who have said, even since then, well, now what does the community do? You, you, you fought for marriage and you got it. So why, why like do you still- a black president? What's the problem yeah. with the system? You're all done yeah. now. <laughs> Which is fascinating to me because if you're looking at that movement, if you will, that, that LGBT rights movement from a singular lens and also from what was put out there in terms of the media. And so there's a lot of folks who never really were for marriage, actually, in the LGBT community, because it was it felt assimilationist and sort of normal. Yes. And I kind of was in that bucket for a while too. Like that should not be our pressing issue because at the time, and this is one of my jobs way back first out of college, I actually worked for a nonprofit and we did some, we got some grants to do some work around LGBT youth suicide. The data on that, it actually hasn't changed since this is probably the nineties where uh, LGBT youth are four times more likely to contemplate suicide. And that's still a problem. And if you think back to, if you can't be what you can't see, it's, it's a struggle. And so when the marriage thing came as the hot issue for the LGBT movement, I was like, no, I was like, our kids are killing themselves because a lot of the money dried up for those projects and went all to the marriage thing. There's so many other issues within the community that nobody really knows about, right? And so that's still an issue. Their experiences in school, especially K through 12, that's an experience. I had mentioned earlier about violence towards trans and gender fluid folks, right? That's a huge problem, especially towards communities of color, especially towards folks that are low income. You have all of these other literally life and death and everyday scenarios that are still playing out across the U.S. for the LGBT community. And so when somebody says to me, oh, you've got what you fought for, you know, I want to- What more could you want now? (laughs) Yeah, it's like, actually, there's a lot of inequity that still exists for LGBT folks. I ask allies to do their education around that. Like I mentioned earlier, you can still get fired in 20 odd states for being LGBT, right? And so if you Google it, you can find a map that says where the policies are. Understand how inequities play out beyond that one issue that kind of normalized LGBT folks for a lot of people. And that's not really what we're, you know, necessarily was the outcome. There's more, there's way more to it than that. I know that there were people that I knew that were in the education system in Mm. uh, secondary ed, and they would not come out because there's a moral clause in their contract and they could be terminated simply for being gay. It just doesn't seem like that could even possibly be true in 2020. And then it wasn't that long ago that something was passed that store owners could refuse service to gay people for religious reasons. There are so many inequities still, and I do think that's right. And allies' work will never be done because (laughs) there's just a lot of inequity that needs to be changed. Yeah. I can actually give you one more example around the sort of the ally thing, but related more to gender identity. And this one is sort of around this gender fluid thing, right? And so pronouns are sort of a big thing. Oh, right. I was going to ask about that. Right? And so I use they as a pronoun because I feel like that just fits me better. I'm not a he, I'm not a she, like it just, it's who I am, right? And so I remember one particular incident where somebody who was this well-meaning ally was like, came up to me, it's like, what's your pronoun, you know? And I was like, ooh, they get it, right? They just, they want to honor me in that way. And so I told them they, and she looked at me and she goes, that's too hard. I don't think I can do it. 
Wow. And that's just one of many similar type things. Like, very is not grammatically correct, blah, 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 all that kind of stuff. But here's the reality. Besides the fact that dictionary.com and Merriam-Webster's and all that stuff said they is fine as a singular pronoun, it's because it feels uncomfortable. And go back to that multiple truth thing, right? And sort of hold my truth. I'm telling you that the pronoun they is what resonates with me. Right. And so if you truly are an ally, you're going to lean into that uncomfortableness and you're going to work with it. I'm not going to be mad at you if you mess it up and go, oh, yeah. she, I, I mean, they, I get it. But if you intentionally ignore it, then you're not my ally. Does that make sense? So you can mess up with it if you keep trying and practice. And yes, it is uncomfortable, but so is being an LGBT person in U.S. society. So I think that's another thing for an ally is hold somebody's truth. Maybe you've never heard this term before or this pronoun you don't understand but I honor you and I respect you and I'm going to try my best, even if it feels funny. I can share with you. Yes, I, I totally agree. A, a friend of mine had a daughter. Her name was Hannah. I knew Hannah before she was even born. <laughs> and Hannah was just the love of my friend's eye. I mean, she was her whole world. And Hannah grew up and in her teens decided that she wanted to do a trans operation. Hannah became Jace. And I struggled with remembering to call him Jace because he was always Hannah to me. And, yeah. you know, it was the same thing. I had a girlfriend who just changed her name from Lynn to Mari because Mari was more in line with numerology. It had nothing to do with sexuality <laughs> or anything. But I had a hard time calling her Mari because she was always Lynn to me. And it just comes down to habit. It's like any habit that you have, if it's important enough to you to break your habit, you have the ability to do that. You just have to care enough about it to want to make the change and to work through the screw ups and to know mm -hmm. you're not going to get it perfectly right away. So just out of curiosity, because I don't have a lot of experience working with they and, and them, if I was going to talk to someone else about your shoes, I might say Chris's shoes, but if I was going to use a pronoun, what would be the proper pronoun in that sentence? It would be they. There are there. Their shoes are awesome. Okay. <laughs> right? gotcha. It's, you know, it's, it's interesting because especially people that say, well, I'm not used to it, right? We actually use they often plural, but we don't realize it. Like, for example, say we're in a room, like maybe you're giving a talk, right? And there's a room full of people and then everybody leaves. But you see on a chair, a backpack. So a singular person left their backpack behind. So what do you do? I know what I would do. I would run over to the backpack. I'd pick it up and I would yell someone left their backpack behind. That's right. We do it all the time. Um, That's right. We don't realize it. And I think it goes back to that really strict binary that we're socializing because as soon as we start seeing a person, we put you into one of those boxes and it's hard for me to let go of the he or the she. But with practice, it gets easier. As a writer, I do the same thing now, but I had to work at it. I've written a few books. My second book, it was about couples. And I talked about he or she, him or her, you know, and it was a lot of words <laughs> to write in, right? Now I can talk about a singular person in the beginning of the sentence and then say their shoes, their book. You can use they and them to refer to a singular rather than writing he or she or him or her. And it makes the writing flow so much better. So yeah. I think there is precedence in the regular world, if you will, whatever regular <laughs> is, to try to um, use that. It just requires commitment, desire, and practice. That's really what it is. It has to matter to you. You have to want to do that. 
anything that is worth doing in this world requires commitment, time and practice, right. right? You know, we got to build true. those muscles and the more you practice them, whatever issue around inclusion and equity we're talking about, the more we build that inclusive lens, it's like building a muscle, right? The more we see, the more we notice. That's right. Yeah. Great. Is there anything that you would like to add in closing, Chris? Oh boy. No. You and I could talk for hours and I don't think I can come up with like that one powerful closing statement, but I mean, I just really appreciate the time and I do feel like there's a million more discussions we could have. So I'm always open to that at any time. You know, I just, I'm appreciative of every time we create a space to have the conversation. That's part of the work. So thank you. Oh, and thank you for your willingness to be a part of it. It means a lot to me. I hope you enjoyed listening to this show as much as I did producing it and that you'll join me next week. This show wraps up my focus on diversity and inclusion. If you'd like more on diversity, check out my first book titled Leveraging Diversity at Work, written with partner Sylvester Baugh, available in bookstores, on Amazon, and other online booksellers. In June, I'm going to be talking about mental health and choice theory. Specifically, next week, I plan to discuss mental illness as the disease of disconnection and how the coronavirus has created the perfect circumstances for mental and emotional distress. I'm really looking forward to it. Talk with you then. This has been another thought-provoking episode of Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life. To listen to past episodes, please visit our website, at www.therelationshipcenter.biz forward slash podcast and remember to subscribe.